0: Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month we read Measure What Matters by venture capitalist John Doerr. Measure What Matters is about OKRs, objectives and key results, an approach to goal setting. Doerr evangelizes the use of OKRs and explains how they can help any organization better align its direction, and continually evaluate its success. OKRs are a simple concept, but the book elucidates them with many anecdotes about their use in varying organizations, including startups, large corporations, and even charities. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves.
1: Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager. I'm Kevin Hudak. I'm chief research officer at a commercial real estate research and advisory firm. And I'm David Kopek. I'm an assistant
2: professor of computer science. Let's start with the author, who is John Doerr. So John Doerr was born in St. Louis. He earned a BS and MEE in electrical engineering and an MBA from Harvard. Uh, he joined Intel uh, during his MBA and before completing it, he he went he went back. He completed his his schooling. And then came back and spent his first few years uh, at Intel, where he learned much of the OKR work that would later define a lot of his career. He then became a venture capitalist at Kleiner Perkins, where he was ultimately the chairman. And he has funded some of the most incredible success stories in the history of Silicon Valley, including Amazon, Google, Intuit, Netscape, Sun Microsystems, and Compaq. It's really an incredible track record.
0: He's been involved in some of the most important tech investments in the last 20 to 30 years. Let's talk about the main concept from the book, an OKR. Briefly, what is an OKR?
1: Yeah, so Dave, an OKR is the abbreviation, obviously, for objectives and key results, as Dave Short mentioned. you know, Really, when it breaks down, it's an objective is the direction, you know, where the company wants to go overall, or even within specific departments and divisions, or even individual employees. Uh, so one of the examples that Dore gave for Intel was, quote, we want to dominate the mid-range microcomputer component business. That was their objective. When you talk about the key results, those are for each objective, you know, they're measurable, they're milestones, right? They're three to five uh, key milestones tied to each of those objectives, right? And really, without any arguments, you can understand, did you complete that key result or did you not? There's no judgments there. It's very unambiguous. And so overall, it becomes this great system for goal setting, and execution for a wide variety of organization types, industries, life stages.
0: So the key results are kind of like scaffolding for the objective. It's what gets you there to the objective actually being accomplished. Let's talk about where this concept came from. Where did OKRs originate? Did Dor just come up with this or was this from previous work?
2: Yeah. So Dor acknowledges that he got the OKR concept from, from Andy Grove at Intel whose books we've actually read earlier in the podcast, High Output Management and Only the Paranoid Survive. But Andy actually acknowledges that he got a lot of it from Peter Drucker beforehand. So Peter Drucker is kind of a, a classic management theorist. I think he's one of the, one of the first people to really write about management in a scientific way. And he came up with a concept called MBO, Management by Objectives. And so I think that was kind of like half of the OKR framework. He didn't actually have the key results piece. But that spread widely throughout Silicon Valley. Uh, it was um, commonly referred to as the HP way because of the implementation at Hewlett-Packard. And that was what had inspired Andy to ultimately develop the OKR framework uh, as he worked at Intel. And we've read previous
0: books by Andy Grove on this podcast. I'll put links to them in the show notes. We previously looked at Only the Paranoid Survive and High Output Management. Okay, according to Door. What are the best practices for defining an
1: objective? So what makes
0: a good objective?
1: Well, I think the most important thing, Dave, is right from the start, you really need to focus on the most important three to five objectives only. This shouldn't be a catalog of every aspiration that your organization and the team has, right? I also think one of his biggest you know, best practices for defining objectives really revolves around who's defining those objectives, right? First off, they should be both top-down and bottom-up in terms of their creation, their origination, but just as important, you know, he recommends that some of the the OKR process kind of has a pilot program almost at the top of the organization, right? The leadership kind of establishing a few rounds of objectives and key results uh, right from the start, create some of that muscle memory, and even going through a couple cycles of OKRs, whether that's quarterly or even two years. Where you're really just building that culture of OKRs from the top uh, and essentially earning the buy in of the rest of the company. I also think another best practice that he really separated out in the book was identifying committed OKRs or committed objectives, right? Things that you agree have to be achieved or will be achieved, and you're willing to adjust your schedules and resources to do that, right? He also identifies these aspirational OKRs, and those are we express how we want the world to look or what we want to change in the world, even though we have no idea how to get there. And he identifies this completion rate idea that when you're looking at objectives and the overall OKRs, their completion rate, right? A one means that all those key results essentially have been achieved or sustained, right? What he says is when you look at committed OKRs, right? Those that we agree need to be achieved, anything less than a one on completion of that right? 100% completion requires some sort of an explanation for that miss. Whereas with those aspirational OKRs, it's okay if you have a 0.7, 70% completion or lower, right? It's really those committed OKRs that you want to really put a lot of business practice and process around, those aspirational OKRs. It's okay to shoot high on those.
0: Thanks, Kevin. I think you've given us a good sense of what a good objective is. Now, these objectives need to be supported by good key results. What does
1: DOR say makes for a good key result? So when we talk about best practices for defining the key results, really where Door, you know emphasized was for every objective, right? And again, there should only be three to five objectives. You want to settle on no more than five measurable, completely unambiguous, and time-bound key results, right? And you want to make sure that if you actually achieve all key results for that objective, that objective will be attained as well. So it's going to be a challenge because while you should only have three to five key results, they really should be linked to that overall objective success. So they need to be concise, but also comprehensive in a way. He also recommends pairing, you know, what he called qualitative and quantitative key results. So while they do need to be measurable They don't necessarily have to be a fixed revenue goal, participation goal, percentage increase, et cetera. Uh, There is some room for some qualitative key results as well.
0: Thanks. I think we have a pretty good sense now of what an objective is and what the key results are that back up that objective. Maybe we can come up with some examples for our audience. Let's say we were talking about our podcast. I'm thinking maybe a valid objective would be increased listenership. What could be some key results that go with that?
1: Yeah, I would say a key result for that, and then I'll... Leave it to David Short to step in as well, but a key result might be posting on Facebook a link to our podcast five times a month or having different touch points, right? So if we look at uh, emails, sending out five emails to our friends and family to encourage them to listen as well. And uh, hi, mom, I hope you're listening. Uh, But David Short, any ideas and some key results for that?
2: Yeah, just a more specific one for that really would be grow listenership by 10%. So we can have the, the tactics that we're going to take that, that Kevin elucidated, and then we want to look at the real numbers and say, did we actually grow by 10%? And hey, maybe we want to grow by 100%. We can set whatever goal we want to, but actually track those numbers to see whether or not we're getting there.
0: Awesome. Okay. There's certain kinds of extensions to OKRs or things around OKRs that can make them even better. And there's four specifically in the book that Dor gets into. He calls them OKR superpowers. I'm wondering if we can get into some of those OKR superpowers. The first one he, he writes about, he calls focus and commit to priorities. What does it mean to focus
1: and commit to priorities? Yeah, I'll take that. So when you think about uh, Dor's advice for focusing and committing to priorities, it's really understanding what is most important for the next three, six, nine, 12 months Right, and successful organizations really focus only on the handful of initiatives that can really make that difference. And it's an interesting thing. In, in my own professional life, I often interview you know key executives at you know high performing uh, firms, whether it's commercial real estate or in my old days, uh, really any B two B providers of services. Right, and I always ask these executives at the end of our interviews, thinking about the next nine to eighteen months, what would be one thing that you would want to fix accomplish, or avoid, right? And they pick whether they want to go with that fix, accomplish, or avoid, and it really gives me what their agenda is going to be over the next nine to 12 months. And in Door's worldview, and what I've experienced as well, the best organizations have that sort of clarity, right, and structure built around what that next three, six, 12 months can look like.
2: Yeah, I think that's the real key, uh, is that by setting top-level objectives, we really can get the entire organization to be rowing in the same direction. And he he gives that example like directly, but that at a large organization, you're going to have a lot of great people that may be thinking about what's the most important thing for their group and focused on that. But if what they're focused on is quite different from what other areas of the company are focused on, that we might be pulling in opposite directions. We might not really be getting towards what as a company we think is the most important objective. And so by establishing these top level ones, we're able to say, these are the things that the whole company is committed to. Let's all try and focus on that and achieve it.
1: Yeah, and I I love the analogy that you made with rowing the boat in the right direction, right? Because everyone can be rowing as hard as they can, even as efficiently as they can. But if you're not rowing in the right direction, that's a problem. And I always love facilitating sessions. One of the things that we start out with that's a bit cute is this, uh, we call it the true north exercise. And when we have all employees of an organization gathered together, we'll ask everyone to close their eyes and point in the direction of north. You'll have some of the people who just point up, you'll have others who are very spatially aware, literally point to where North is from our conference center, and you'll have others who just sort of give up. And that's always one of our examples that we give, just in a fun way of uh, how you know, organizations need that common sense of direction, that common orientation.
0: And that's a great segue into the next superpower, which both of you have kind of already
1: described, but it's called Align and Connect for Teamwork. Is there anything more you want to say about that? Yeah, and it's interesting. I just brought up the idea of an all-hands meeting, and Dorr suggests that, you know, all-hands meetings in the organization should really be used to explain why a given OKR is important, right? You need to repeat the message. You need to incentivize participation. But he also recommends, and I thought this was a fantastic idea, you know, make sure to use some of what he calls bottom-up OKRs for buy-in, right? And that's asking some of the junior associates, mid-level management for their own OKRs for them to develop them uh, so that they have some of that buy-in and they believe, rightfully so, that
2: their input matters, right? And the outcomes that they help achieve matter as well. And I think that the distinction here is that by having these sessions quarterly or annually, however you're doing the OKRs, it really gives an opportunity to get everyone in the same room and to find those places where you need support from others And hopefully get, you know, both groups to set some common OKR that they're both focused on, or maybe they have a common objective, but there are key results that are different for each part of the organization, but really having that opportunity to align across those different groups. And again, make sure they're they're rowing in the right direction.
0: So we have everyone in the organization working on their OKRs. How do we make sure they're actually accomplishing them? So there's another superpower called track for accountability.
1: Yeah, here he really talks about continuous assessment. Right. And constantly checking in on OKRs, whether it's on that quarterly fixed basis, or if it's just as some projects complete, things move through the workflow. Dorr also mentions it's important to, you know, have those OKR shepherds, right? Individuals who have responsibility for a given OKR, right? They can flag when there's updating needed. Right. And he also recommends using OKR grades at the end of a cycle, whether that's green or red. To understand and reflect on, did we actually achieve what we were looking to achieve here? Were the key results the correct key results to then measure achievement of that goal or that objective? And do we need to edit this, right? This is not something that is set in stone, right? Your resolve and your initiative for actually pursuing the initiative needs to be set in stone, but the OKRs themselves can be fluid as the reality changes, as markets change, as teams change. So he does encourage some editing of those key results and their language, the narrative of them as well.
2: Yeah, and I would say while you're setting them on typically a quarterly or annual basis, you should be checking in on them a lot more frequently than that. And so he he mentions you know oftentimes talking about it in bi-weekly check-ins with your manager working on it at least like on a monthly basis in larger organizations and so having those periodic check-ins so it's not just oh, every three months we see like did we do what we said we were going to do last quarter but continuously monitoring and seeing how are we progressing on them and do we need to shift resources or something in order to achieve what we had committed to.
1: And that's a great point, David, too, because one thing he also encourages is just full and utter transparency around OKRs. The idea being that someone in a lower role can see the OKRs, the individual OKRs of the C-suite and the CEO and the entire organization. And so this ability to kind of pollinate cross-department and cross-level is really important to that assessment and tracking component as well.
0: And one way that some of the organizations in the book do the tracking is actually using software products. So there are actually specific products for tracking OKRs. And then some of them actually built custom dashboards, which I thought was pretty cool as well, so that everyone can see how they're doing on some big ones for the whole organization. And it can be a motivating factor as well. The last OKR superpower is stretch for amazing.
1: What does that mean? And this, I mentioned this earlier, but really, this is the distinguishing between the committed and aspirational OKRs, and making sure that you do have some of those aspirational OKRs that seek to change the world, change your operating environment, etc. And it's really about looking at different definitions of success for each. This is where Door talks about, you know, having this culture of free to fail, right? The idea being that you can set some of those. Aspirational OKRs. And even if you do hit that 0.7 or even lower, right, you want to stretch for that amazing. You want to set ambitious goals when it comes to your OKR process. And these are things, you know, when we look at the idea of Google and YouTube, right, when they started talking through the billion hours. OKR that they had uh, or the objective that they had. That was really that stretch for the amazing, stretch for some of that really world-defining change, and then assess and see where we were. Do we have to edit some of those key results uh, to change our, our track there?
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. It's important to have really big goals that excite people. So the book is divided into two parts. The first part is, of course, about OKRs. The second part goes into some other topics as well. It's called The New World of Work. One of those topics is CFR.
1: What is CFR? And so CFR stands for conversation, feedback, and recognition. And really, in Doors' world, it's the backbone of continuous performance management versus more of annual performance management. And it really comes down to a culture where you're constantly engaging in dialogues between direct reports, their supervisors, upper-level leadership, more of a fluid constant process of feedback and recognition as opposed to you're waiting um, you know, for the yearly review to check in on your progress as an employee, your progress contributing to overall company performance, right? A quote that I really enjoy that kind of explains CFR is that the OKRs lend us purpose and clarity as we plunge into the new. The CFRs supply the energy we need for the journey. So the CFRs are, and when you think about that, conversation, feedback, recognition, It's the part of the culture that's going to energize employees. It's going to generate buy-in. It's going to increase their productivity and satisfaction with the company so that they can be the fuel and the energy behind achieving uh, and completing those OKRs. You know, another way that he framed it was, quote, OKRs are clear vessels for the leader's priorities and insights. CFRs help ensure that those priorities and insights get transmitted and I would add, get transmitted and acted upon by the employee base.
0: That makes sense. And how do you actually go about implementing CFRs according to Dor?
1: So on this one, I thought a good example that John Doerr gave was uh, his best practices from Adobe. So he mentioned that there were really three things that set apart Adobe's system from a typical annual performance process uh, and kind of legacy human capital management. One, he talked about executive support. Two, clarity on the company's priorities and how they align with individual priorities uh, as set in goals and expectations. So really, the first one is executive support and buy-in. The second one are the OKRs themselves, right, which are almost that prerequisite to the CFRs. And the third one I thought was super important was actually investment in training to help equip managers to be more effective, right, when it comes to the process of conversation, feedback, and recognition. So Adobe actually put managers in one hour online sessions to actually role play on different CFR and performance management system situations. So imagine if you have an employee who you want to coach, how can I approach them constructively? How can this conversation, you know, be fantastic? I also like the idea that when you have these CFR meetings, right? So these can be anywhere from monthly, quarterly, biweekly, right? These conversations Between a direct report and a supervisor are really owned by the direct report to start that dialogue and share where they're at in their progress towards OKRs, their progress at the company, and the supervisor to react and coach and educate, even, which I thought was important. And then finally, I really liked how in the Adobe example that Door gave, the HR teams became more the manager, more than just kind of managers of the process and the paper. HR teams became engaged cross-functionally, right? They become integral members of the team. They have a seat at the table. And I just wanted to shout out to all my friends here in the DC metro area who are human resources all-stars. I know many of you are already engaged in these sorts of dialogues, but I thought that picture of Adobe was really aspirational and where companies are hopefully moving in the future.
0: You just mentioned a great anecdote from Adobe there, Kevin. And, you know, the book is actually full of anecdotes, Dore tries to really support the chapters with follow-up chapters that explain how the key OKR insight is actually implemented in practice. Let's talk about some of those anecdotes. So what were your favorites in the book, which really spoke to you?
2: Yeah, so I found, I think Google is probably the, the company that he talked about the most. And the, the piece that I enjoyed the most was the YouTube story. So Dor talks about, and, and frankly, there's, there's writing from some, some YouTube personnel within the book, uh, the experience that YouTube had in implementing their own OKRs and the way that it really transformed the company. And I found it really interesting. So you know, Google historically was really focused on clicks and page views because you know, Google uh, is, is driven by, by search and you know, ad revenue from there, AdSense, uh, et cetera. And so that was the way a lot of their OKRs had been established. It was around like number of users, number of clicks, number of page views. And YouTube had like fairly similar metrics originally. So they were saying number of videos that are viewed. And that was frankly the way that they were making money as well. Uh, YouTube was only running ads on pre-roll. So you would only see an ad when you clicked into something new. And so that you know, naturally drove YouTube to encourage people to watch sort of shorter and shorter clips. To get them to watch a new clip, and so by you know taking the opportunity to think about what are their true objectives uh, and key results, and and where are they focused, they kind of realize that at YouTube they're not the same kind of company. What they care about is how much time people are spending on YouTube. It's not how many different videos they watch. It's just as good for them if you watch a four-hour video as if you watch you know fifty you know ten-minute videos or whatever whatever the the number would would work out to. And while at the time they were only earning revenue on those on those 50 different clicks, they, they have now, as I'm sure you all know, implemented, you know, mid-roll video ads. So they do get, you know, monetized the longer duration that people are spending on the platform. And so having people spend, you know, all day on YouTube is more what they're going for now as opposed to just getting them to click a lot of different videos. Yeah. And in,
1: in terms of what I really took away as the most powerful anecdotes and, uh, you know, personally, one. I really enjoyed the vignette around Remind, which was or is a technology startup based around education and giving teachers the ability to text their students, their students' parents with reminders and building an ecosystem of uh, you know safe kind of conversation to ensure good outcomes for students, right? And in my professional life, we're currently working on developing a SaaS product uh, related to commercial real estate research and I can share more on that as the season evolves, but you know, still in its foundational stage, but I really took the lessons away from uh, that vignette, you know in particular as they were preparing for their demo day uh, opportunity, you know, the founders of the company uh, really were paying attention to three watchwords for entrepreneurs. you know one, solve a problem. Two, build a simple product. and three, talk to your users. So it wasn't so much on the okr side there but more on the business practice side where I took away a lot from that example. I also thought that Zoom Pizza, uh, that's spelled Z-U-M-E for those listening, was also a pretty effective anecdote uh, where we started moving into, you know, what are some of the potential hurdles for implementing OKR in organizations? But I love how Door came in and said that really OKRs can remove personality from internal resource conflicts. And I'm sure a number of listeners are working at firms where you do have you are short on internal resources, or you do have uh, some bandwidth issues. And you know what Door explained was an example where, for example, if two executives own a shared objective for customer satisfaction, you know uh, one might say they have a key result for expanding their delivery radius, and now that's at risk, right? Maybe it was the manufacturing team that caused this, that was delayed in getting a vehicle online, but it really creates this idea of it's not anyone's. Fault per se. You're not basing your, the controversy isn't based around personality. It's based upon achievement of those key results, right? One of those quotes he says, in another life, one of these individuals might have called out the manufacturing league, quote, what the hell? Can you hurry up and get this done? I've been waiting forever, quote, instead you say, my key result is at risk. And as Dorr says, it's less charged and more constructive. And I thought when you're looking at Organizations that are scaling up, growing at a quick pace like Zoom was at that time, it's really helpful to step back from personalities and frame the idea of a conversation over resources, needs, over key results. And I really took away a lot from that.
0: That's very cool. I will say, however, that Zoom Pizza is no longer making pizza and maybe we'll get more into this a little bit later, but um, some of the companies that were included in the book in the anecdote section, they just feel like they were there because of how close the company was to door more than how well it might have actually illustrated a certain point. For my own favorite anecdotes, I would say both of them were related to charitable foundations. The Gates Foundation and Bono's One Campaign both get their own chapters in the book. I thought that was cool from the standpoint of this is actually a great technique not just for large corporations but also for nonprofits and there's some smaller organizations included as well like the start one of the startups you just mentioned Kevin but what I really loved about this is you know oftentimes when you give money to charity you feel like okay I hope it's going to be used for something good but you don't always feel like the charity is actually really carefully measuring their impact and measuring how every dollar is spent there's been more of a movement in the nonprofit world towards that over the last couple of decades but Probably no organization has been more at the forefront of that than the Gates Foundation, sometimes with some controversy, but they've also done some amazing things that I don't think they could have done, such as the amount of vaccines that they've distributed around the world without using certain kind of OKR techniques. So I thought that was pretty powerful to see how these techniques could really be applied in the nonprofit world, just like they're applied in the business world. Let's talk about our own workplaces. So. At your workplaces, do you actually use OKRs or do you use something kind of like them? What about CFR? Are you actually implementing this?
2: Yeah, so I've used OKRs at my last two places of employment. So previously worked at Wayfair. And while I was there, we went through an effort to to implement OKRs. I would say it stayed at more of like a, a higher level effort with not that much coming from bottom up. It was more just at that like sort of early stages there. And then um, at my current company, we actually had sort of the opposite happen where, where my smaller group in the bank decided to implement OKRs. And so they did come from sort of like low level or, you know, not, not super low level, but just like one layer above me effectively. And then, you know, was was implemented by a number of the, the teams within my organization. And then we saw a lot of success with it and it actually moved up. So now the entire retail bank is now implementing OKRs. And so I would say it's definitely a, a, a combination of the bottom up and top down that, that I've seen. And I've, I found it to be quite interesting to, to understand what are the sort of top level objectives and do those ladder down to things that my team can directly own. And so we'll sort of start with uh, high level objectives that exist for the broader organization. I'll look at those and I'll kind of translate them into what it means for my team. And then I'll set key results that we truly can move within the next quarter based off of the work that we're trying to to accomplish. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely been useful for me and especially on helping to push back on things, basically that like focus and priorities piece to say, when someone comes in and asks our team to work on something, we can say, hey, these are the things that we think are the most important. And so that's why we're working on these things. And it's why we can't work on this other thing doesn't mean we won't ever do that, but like right now, that's not considered one of our core objectives, and so that's why we're we're not planning on you know diverting our resources to focus on that.
1: What about for you, Kevin? Do you use OKRs? Yeah, so it's interesting for for my organization, we've sort of backed into OKRs without using that language specifically. Uh, so we advise clients, and for our own internal planning processes. You know, we use the SMART criteria for setting goals and objectives, right? So that's uh, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. What we then do, though, is we develop what we call SMART plans, right? And these can be company-wide SMART plans, uh, paired with division or department departmental-specific SMART plans, and even individual employee SMART plans. Now, as I was reading through this book, you know, I could see how the process that we've used to develop smart plans in the past could be seen as top down but something that we've always uh, integrated into this planning process as I've mentioned I I primarily a researcher and so before we ever develop smart plans for a client we've always been conducting external research amongst their customers or key stakeholders or their clients we've also been doing internal research amongst the employees themselves so alignment engagement surveys employee focus groups you know, really to understand what their expectations are and how our client is doing in terms of meeting them or exceeding them. And we would design those smart plans to, you know, essentially guide the employee base based on what we're hearing in the research uh, and what they've expressed in these collaborative workshops that we would do, right? So even though they are smart plans, essentially coming from the top down in terms of a consultant working with company leadership right, in collaboration with the employees, they are based on what those employees, what those customers and clients are saying. So it was, it, it's interesting. I was seeing a lot of the OKR process in what we do just under a different name, under a different label. And just reading this book by John Doerr, you know, will inform my practice going forward.
0: It might surprise you, since I work in academia, to know that we actually do use something like OKRs. Instead of just thinking about our programs or our majors as departments, we actually call them programs, and we call each of the people who runs the programs program directors. So one of my roles is I'm co-program director of a couple different programs, computer science and app development. Once a year, we actually write a report with what we want to accomplish over the next year in the program and how we wanna go about reporting. It's not exactly the same thing as an OKR, but it's close. And I think what's really missing in what we're doing right now is the continuity of that, in that like we put it out there once a year and then we measure it at the end of the year, but there's no kind of continuous checking on, are we actually making some progress on the key results? And so this book has really inspired me that this is something we could do a lot better. But um, I think there, you know, the, in academia, sometimes things move a little slow might be a bit of a challenge to get the data actually on a continuous basis, but something definitely to think about that we can improve. So thinking about the book as a whole, was there anything in the book that you really didn't agree with, you found unconvincing, was kind of inconsistent from one chapter to the next, or from one anecdote about OKRs to the next? What really didn't work for you?
1: Yeah, one thing that I'll start with was, you know I really took away a positive at first, but then in conversation with you both, uh, you know, I sort of walked away thinking it was an area of maybe some inconsistency. You know, when we talk about Doors' reflections on Andy Grove, which I really enjoyed, uh, not having read uh, you know any of the prior pieces by Andy, you know one example I saw was when a manager was failing at Intel, you know, Andy Grove would try to find another role, even if it were lower in the organization. Where, you know, that employee might be able to gain some more steam or standing, get some more respect from colleagues. Right. And, you know, as someone who's sat in a number of meetings where, you know, we've discussed or I've heard we need to coach this person up, or we have to coach them out, right? Or even looking at Jim Collins with good to great and his idea of you know getting off the bus, right? The getting off the bus mentality. You know, I thought Andy Grove's mentality on this was somewhat refreshing. Right. And then in conversation and some reflection, though, I realized. You know, that idea of uh, almost uh, promoting someone down so that they can elevate up, right, demoting to promote might not be as realistic for today's talent. So while I found it kind of consistent and convincing for that time, and it might actually still be a best practice, you know, I I really don't see that as resonating with employees today.
0: You're right. I can't even imagine it. Like if you were going to go and say to somebody, well, here's a demotion because we want you to do better, especially with what's been happening since the pandemic with kind of the force
2: of labor right now i don't see it working i will say that i did kind of do this for myself so i did later in my career choose to enter the product management field and i took a pretty significant pay cut in order to go into the industry at a relatively low level it was only sort of the few years out of college position and you know i'd been working for i don't know 7 or 8 years when i when i chose to make that change so but I was able to move up quickly as a result of you know the experience that I had, and so you know I think it was the right decision for me. But I'm not sure if I would have been able to handle that uh, as as a uh, as a demotion that was given to me by my manager. So I, I would say like I wish people could could act this way because I think it's probably true that shifting towards the thing that you're going to be better suited for, even if it is like a temporary step down, is probably better for you in the long run. But I would agree that it's not something that a lot of people are going to be able to handle.
0: Yeah, I mean, but that was you really changing careers in a sense, going from one organization to another. So I don't know if that's really the same as being within the organization. Like you mentioned, if your manager had done it to you, I think that's such a different you know, situation. Kevin, you have another objection, right?
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that we're moving from talking about demotions for promotions now into another thing about kind of organizational position. Right, and and John Doerr in this book, he preaches that bottom-up OKR setting, right? The idea that all employees could form their own OKRs. But what I see then is that he's only presenting anecdotes from the top of these organizations, right? What about having some vignettes of managers, lower-level employees who have successfully accomplished this or benefited from the OKR culture, right? I think the lowest person that we heard from was director of marketing for Zoom Pizza, Joseph Suzuki. And one of the things I appreciated about that anecdote, that vignette, he was initially very doubtful of OKRs, right? And this only came at the very end of Doors' narrative, right? In the final chapter, I believe, right? I almost wanted to see some of those objections up front, right? We were presented the super successful outcomes from Intel, from Google, and many others And it almost felt like unrealistic to me that there was nobody who was in the organization a bit more cynical about this who needed to be convinced. And one of John Doerr's points in what I call the capstone towards the end of the book was that some of those employees who are cynical, right, or do have some reticence around OKRs, if they stay in the organization, they tend to be some of those most satisfied and successful with OKRs. And just thinking about overcoming objections, I thought that that really needed to be included More upfront. I was almost tuning out in the beginning just because everything seemed so hunky dory. And it was only towards the end of the book that I really felt the narrative speak to me about how can you overcome these objections, right? I think that people reading this book need to see how they can sell it to the quote unquote masses of their companies, right? Whose participation, Dorr says, is essential. But ultimately, he really doesn't profile that many of the quote unquote masses.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's really a, a pretty big shortcoming in the book. Thinking again about the book at a big picture, what were your most important key
1: takeaways? Yeah, when I think about the totality of the book, right, and one thing I was going to mention too was that there's a lot of focus on tech and tech-adjacent companies, which is why I appreciated uh, Kopeck when you were highlighting the fact that he was talking about some nonprofits and associations, particularly with Bono's One Campaign, right? But one I took away from this was really that it's better to start on the right track than to have to rescue your organization. And I thought that that St. Louis-based Lumeris in healthcare technology, right, they had been implementing OKR, but not necessarily doing it as effectively as possible, right? And the timeline for course correction was 18 months at the executive level and almost as much as three years for middle management to really get back on the right track. And it took them transitioning out about 85% of their HR team, right? I found it interesting, though, that Once we got to the right track, a core transformation was in their interview process at Lumeris. And going back to our episode with Liftoff by Eric Berger, we heard about how the interview process and how who you pick and how you bring them on board is so important, particularly with that Zach Dunn example, the anecdote. Uh, I thought it was interesting that really that transformation was based on the HR team, on interview process, on talent attraction. But yeah, one key takeaway was It's a lot better to start on the right track than it is to rescue your
2: organization from the wrong track. Yeah, I think that's a great one. And I think it's sort of similar to to my key takeaway, which is that OKRs are only as good as the buy-in that you're really getting within the organization. So just coming in and saying, we're going to implement this new process is fine. It might be a little bit helpful. But if it's just like paperwork that people are doing, it's not really going to move the needle it can very easily turn into this sort of pointless exercise where everything's green because people just set goals that are not very difficult to attain in order to make sure that they're always attaining them. And so really getting true buy-in across the organization, having leadership really be committed to it, but also so much so that they're engaging with the more junior people. At, at my company, we don't actually do like individual OKRs. I think it would be interesting to to try and do that. I might, I might try to implement that for myself as sort of a, a follow-up from this. But I do think it's we've we've taken it down at least to like the team level. So sort of like the smallest unit above the individual. And and I really have found it to be effective, but it's effective because I get my team to really like be involved. I don't just say like, oh, this is what we're going to do. I say I, I, I put in the effort first. I say this is what I think makes sense. But then I ask for their input. I maybe adjust some of the key results based off of input that comes from the engineers. And I think through that process of really having everyone be involved. That's where we really get that, you know, everyone rowing in the same direction type feel, as opposed to just everyone fills out a piece of paperwork because it's an obligation.
0: My most important takeaway was much simpler than this. When I was in high school, I had a gym coach who he took a gym session where instead of actually doing a physical activity, he just sat us down and he's like, I want to talk to you about goal setting. And he was this really gruff guy, but he said, you know, there's studies that show if you just tell a friend about one of your goals you're 20% more likely to do it. And he said, then if you write it down on a calendar, then you're another 20% more likely to do it. And he said, therefore, if you just do these two things, you're already 40% done, which doesn't exactly make sense, but it actually kind of stuck with me. And this book is really about that, right? It's about when you have a goal, you actually make it concrete by writing it down, making it real, and then sharing it with the rest of the organization. And then what it adds to that is actually the key results, which is having those measurable touch points that show that you're actually progressing towards that objective. I think that's such a simple concept, but there's so many areas in our lives, both personally and at our organizations, where we don't do this. We have very either very vague goals that aren't clearly written down, or they're written down and they don't have really measurable key results that go with them. And I think if we just did this more in a lot of our organizations, we'd be a lot more successful. I'll give you an example from, uh, from my own work. So one thing we want to do sometimes, depending on the program, is we want to increase enrollment. So we want to have more students coming in the next year. We talk about that all the time, but we very rare, and we write that down, but very rarely write down what would be the key results that go with it. What are the specific things other than that big top line number that we're going to do that we can actually measure? That are going to contribute to that improvement in the objective. So I think just the really simple concept that the book is about is really my key takeaway. that, we, that The reason it's so important is it's effective, obviously. And the reason that we need to have a book about it is because we're not doing it enough. Okay. I want to then talk about a review of the book. Uh, but before we get to that, is there anything we missed? What else do you want to say about the book
1: that we didn't get to? So I thought it was interesting, you know, this is a bit unrelated, but, you know, one of my favorite moments short brought up the example of YouTube, but when they were OKRing to 1 billion hours of watch time, you know, they realized that there was a substantial segment of their viewership that was watching, you know, what I would call kind of garbage videos, like when they bully babies and put them in pots and pans uh, and videotape that. And it's interesting, and again, this is public facing from the YouTube team, but they essentially said, we want to de-emphasize and even remove some of those videos from our algorithm, right? And Dorr called this the principled stretch, right? But doing so, they lost half a percentage point of their viewership time, right? So they actually hurt that key result almost, but ultimately they regained and even exceeded that in delivering more satisfying and productive videos. So they made that initial sacrifice in order to ultimately hit that key result and, and, and exceed that, right? And again, Door calls it the principled stretch, but it really shows that OKRs can be used as positive forces for sure. But on the other hand, when you look at other companies that are allegedly inflating their negative or anger-inducing content, it looks like some of these OKRs can be used as forces for division as well. And I won't name any names unless you guys want to, but you know these can be used for good and for bad. It all depends on the choices that those OKR shepherds are making, company culture, company vision, mission, and strategy.
0: Thanks, Kevin. That's really interesting. So let's talk about our recommendation. Do we actually think this is a good book that our listeners should read? And if
2: it is, which of them should read it? So I did enjoy the book. I think I gave it four stars on Goodreads. But- To be honest, I would only recommend it if you haven't already read Andy Grove's books. Like, I feel like this is maybe like a twenty-page pamphlet addendum to uh, high output management. Is like really the way that that I thought about it for myself. And so, like, I think it's a good book. I think it has some good anecdotes. But honestly, I feel like some of the anecdotes are kind of just there because John Doerr worked with these companies or funded them. You you talked about sort of the the Zoom, you know, ultimate you know success or failure story. And so I guess my, my perspective is, if all you are interested in is OKR specifically, I think this is a good book that is focused just on OKRs. But I think that, like, honestly, I would say still probably go for high output management instead.
1: Yeah, and I definitely appreciate that too short. Sure. And I hadn't really thought through this until, you know, I'd heard some of your viewpoints. I, in particular, enjoyed the book, as you mentioned. I would also recommend it in part because I hadn't read any of of Andy Grove's previous works. Uh, I really liked the idea of this being a combination textbook with, you know, many kind of pages of resources towards the end, but also some of those vignettes and anecdotes from the companies that he's advised. I would say I wish that there was more industry coverage, right, or functional coverage. Again, speaking to some of those mid-level managers and even as junior associates about their experience with this, talking to some companies or organizations that He didn't necessarily advise. So imagine, you know, I came from a political polling firm when I first arrived here to the D.C. metro area. You know, the idea of OKRs is ingrained and backed into in political campaigns, but not necessarily by that OKR terminology per se. But I would have been interested in having a chapter where he's applying OKRs to non-tech, non-tech adjacent, you know, industries that he hasn't necessarily been such a force in. But overall, though, I thought, you know, for example, in the Zoom pizza example, when they talked about this idea of bringing the best of big company structure and goal setting to smaller companies so that they're prepped to scale, you know, in my experience and my experience advising clients, that's so important. I think there's a lot of value there. And so I'd probably say, yes, I would recommend this four stars, but I'd say smaller company executives and startup types would probably take away the most absolute value from checking out this book. And it comes back to my point earlier that you wanna start right. You wanna start on that right track as opposed to use that Lumeris example, maybe start off on the wrong track and then have to do a serious course correction that alters your organization in some pretty uh, in spectacular ways, but also a lot of drama, I would imagine, too. So start right and pick up this book if you're going down that track.
0: In my opinion, it's a good book. It has a really important key concept The key concept, like David said, can be explained in a lot fewer pages. You don't really need to read 250 pages to understand what an objective is and what key results are. That said, the anecdotes do keep it a little bit more lively. It stops it from getting too dry. I agree with you, Kevin. It would have been interesting to hear some other anecdotes that are related to other kinds of industries. For example, maybe something from politics, maybe even something from a solo entrepreneur and how that person could use objectives and key results. I think that the concept of objectives and key results is applicable to just about any organization. So I wouldn't segment our listeners and say, hey, if you're in this type of organization, this isn't applicable to you. There's really nobody that this basic concept is not applicable to. As I mentioned in academia, I think it's very applicable. But the book as a whole, I did find a little bit long winded by the very end. And I think it probably could have been, you know like like David said, a 20-page book instead of a 250-page book, especially if you've read, like David mentioned. So I'll agree with everything David said, one of those previous Andy Grove books or another kind of business self-help book that has a lot of this in it. Okay. Next month, we're going to be reading Instant, The Story of Polaroid by Christopher Bonanos, And uh, this is actually my pick. I've always been kind of interested in Edwin Land, who was both a scientist and also the great entrepreneur that started Polaroid. And what I think is a little bit interesting about this book compared to the books that we've read the last couple of seasons is this is actually about a company that failed. Polaroid, for those of you that don't know, was the instant camera of the 20th century before digital cameras. Obviously, almost nobody is taking film anymore. Nobody is going and using Polaroid cameras anymore because of digital cameras. And they actually went bankrupt at the beginning of the century. So I think it's going to be interesting to actually read a book that's about the downfall of a company, the rise and the downfall, unlike all of the just the glory stories that we typically do on the show. Okay. Is there anything that any of
2: you want to plug? And how can listeners get in touch with the two of you? You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Hudak's
1: Basement.
0: And you can follow me on Twitter at Dave Kopek, D A V E K O P C. It's been awesome having everybody back this month. We're excited about this season. We had a great kickoff last month with Liftoff. Had another cool book this month with Measure What Matters. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice, and we'll see you next month.